Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts. Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. All right, all right. This is Carpe Consensus. I'm Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson is here as well. Hey, Danny. Hello. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. We're proud to be here and telling you all about the world of crypto and particularly about the world of SBF and his falling empire, which is currently being litigated in a courtroom downtown. And we're going to be catching up with that case very shortly. So I was watching the water bottles uh, during one of the days when Caroline Ellison was testifying. And by the water bottles, I don't just mean the fancy Starbucks types that some of the prosecutors have. I mean the Deer Valley water bottles, the Deer Park water bottles that lots of people have, those plastic ones. Now, for the most part, all these lawyers, they just drink it and they put it down, they put a cap on it, that's all. But I noticed something weird. Sam Bankman fried and he hadn't done this before and he hasn't done it since, but on Caroline Day, he would pick up the water, he'd crush it as he drank it, and he would recap it so that when he put it back on the table it would be like compressed and no one else was doing this and he hasn't done it since. So I think that he betrayed some of his anger right there in how he just absolutely tried to squeeze the life out of that water bottle while watching his ex-girlfriend testify against him. Oh, that sounds ugly. I mean, we've all got some uh, difficult relationships in our past that we might want to be angry around, but uh, I guess he's a special case in that with uh, Ellison. I mean, they've got a lot of bad blood there now. They're talking against each other. They certainly do. I mean, she gave such damning testimony that there's no, he's so cooked. I almost feel bad for him. Like, he's so undeniably cooked. She told the story on the stand about how she, and Caroline, of course, was the CEO of Alameda Research, which was the head fund accused of. Well, she pled guilty to it. So according to her, it's the hedge fund that stole $8 billion from FTX customers. She knew that it wouldn't look so good on their books if Alameda was telling lenders like Genesis of Coindesk, a sister company, that it had $8 billion from FTX customers. So she made seven different types of balance sheet, each one slightly manipulating the numbers in a different way to hide this massive trove to send out to Alameda clients. It's like so deeply illegal. 
I don't even know. She, but she did it at Sam's direction, and she said, "Sam, please pick your favorite of the seven. These book cookers were out of control." I was really taken by some of the details from Ellison's testimony because it revealed new facts and, and uh, hidden things from FTX, uh, including that he reached out to Saudi Arabia to try and get funding uh, when the company was going down. And also he tried to bribe apparently some Chinese officials to get money out of that country. Do you want to talk about those things? Well, we can go uh, in order of appearance, I guess, because the two events are completely unrelated. Back a long time ago, I think in 2020 or 2021, Alameda had been trading a lot using Chinese exchanges, and the Chinese government froze their accounts, not because of Alameda specifically, but in an unrelated money laundering investigation, Alameda's accounts got frozen. And so according to Caroline Ellison, for about a year, FTX and Alameda um, executives worked to try to unfreeze these accounts. And what she told the jury was that ultimately, the FTX people decided to send a payment of about 100 or $150 million to an address. And if they were to do this, then everything would be okay. And she did this, and she said that it was a bribe. And there was a whole battle in court over whether or not she could call it a bribe, because he's not being charged with bribing officials. But ultimately, we, were, we got to hear this little story, because according to the prosecution, it spoke to the extent to which Sam was willing to do things to, to get it done. And the extent to which he was, wanted to do this got pretty creative. Like at one point, they set up a whole bunch of fake accounts on this exchange using the identities of Thai prostitutes that one of the other executives knew the names of. We didn't get to hear why he knew the names of them, but apparently Ryan Salem knew the names of these Thai prostitutes. And these fake accounts were used to trade against the main account to try to get the money out. That didn't work. When that didn't work, they resorted to this bribe-like payment, which I'd, I'd never heard such a crazy story before. So that was in the better days when FTX and Alameda were still not actively failing. In the last November, when Alameda and FTX were actively failing under the weight of Coindesk's balance sheet leak and uh, CZ's gun to the head of, of I'm going to sell all the FTT I can. Sam was trying to right the ship just by getting capital from anywhere he could. And apparently, he tried to call Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, who has limitless money. Now, as far as we can tell, that bailout never came because Sam Bankman-Fried is no longer the CEO of FTX, to put it mildly. Interesting. That seems to be the last... The last refuge for people seeking money to reach out to Saudi Arabia. I mean, during the financial crisis, that was a play from uh, the big banks, wasn't it? I mean, Lehman was reaching out and some of the others. Well, the Saudis just have unlimited oil wealth. And I guess when you have nowhere else to turn, you can turn over that sometimes unseemly rock and try to shake some money out. It doesn't seem to work so much. Maybe because the Saudis are good business people and they don't really like spending money on frauds. <laughs> So, All right, Danny. So a um, lot of interesting details came out last week. What are you looking forward to as we head forward in the trial? Uh, why don't you start from the defense side? What do you think they're making of the trial so far? And what do you think they're thinking about uh, how to play it forward? Well, I think that Mark Cohen and Chris Everdell, the two lead defense lawyers, are thinking about who their next client is going to be, because this one isn't working out so well. 
maybe because <laughs> Sam is such a was such a bad client in Toronto to this. Like he spent the month between FTX collapse and his arrest trying to convince the world that sure he'd screwed up, but it definitely wasn't criming. When he did that, he said a lot of stupid things. And a lot of stupid things will definitely piss off your lawyers because it makes their jobs harder. So, I mean, this was something we heard at the time, Danny, that everyone was telling him to shut up. It wouldn't help his defense. Are we seeing that play out in the actual trial now? Well, we're not seeing his New York Times interview or the draft of the speech he was going to give to Congress where he starts off by saying, quote, I f***ed up. But we are seeing his tweets from the, ver- the days when FTX was collapsing. And some choice tweets like, FTX is fine, customer assets are fine. All these representations that he made to the world that things weren't going horribly wrong, those have started showing up in the trial. We haven't yet gotten to hear how the defense will spin all this stuff, if they'll try at all. Because the way that this trial works, first the prosecution goes, and they'll go until, I believe, October 26th. And at that point, it will become the defense's turn to present its own case, if it will present a case at all. But do you feel that the uh, strategy of the defense has changed from what we've learned so far from what the prosecution has done? You know, I don't see a strategy quite yet. It's really hard because there's just so much evidence against Sam here. There's so much evidence and there are so many witnesses who have firsthand knowledge of how this went down because his whole inner circle flipped on him. All the defense can try to do is discredit these people, and it hasn't done a very good job in the cross-examination. Like Caroline, she wasn't a perfect witness in that she said too much for her own good sometimes. There was one moment where the defense asked her if hacking was a risk to FTX in Alameda, and she said, yes, it was. It happened a few times. And he, the, the defense said, really? And she said, yes. Now, the big rule of being a witness is you answer the question and only the question. If someone asks you, was hacking a risk, then you say it was or it wasn't. But you don't say, oh, by the way, we got hacked a few times, because that opens a door that the defense can go through. Now, the defense didn't go through it, maybe because they may have found something they didn't like inside of that door. Like, yes, Sam was aware of the hacking, and therefore Sam is presented to be a worse person. But she was saying too much. Now, the defense didn't really take any gambles to try to capitalize on that. So I'm just left feeling like they didn't really get the job done because they didn't discredit Caroline too much at all. Hmm. Okay. What about from the prosecutor's uh, point of view? Do you think the trial is going well from their point of view? I think the trial is going excellently for the prosecution. They have, well, one should say prosecutors really only like bringing slam dunk cases because it's a trial, because you don't want to spend all this time trying to bring a case that isn't airtight. This one really is quite airtight, I would say. Look, I haven't ever seen a criminal trial before. This is my first time. But they have done a really good job of knowing this thing inside and out. They're saying the names of things correctly. They're following up with people to try to explain jargon, trying to present this case in a way that makes the most sense for the jury. They have a story that they want to tell, and they're telling it well. We haven't yet gotten to decide whether the defense is telling much of a story at all. So just take us inside the courtroom uh, as a journalist. What's that been like? I mean, there's a lot of uh, interest in this case. You know, what's it like hanging around with all these reporters and working out what's going on? 
oh, it's excellent. In order to get in on busy days, you have to get there at, oh my goodness, 5 a.m. So for a couple of days during court, I was waking up way too early and getting to court by 5 a.m. to get in line to see some oh testimony. God. You wait from 5 to 8. At 8 o'clock, they let you in. From Then you wait again inside from 8 to 9. At this point, you don't have your cell phone. And then they let you up. And assuming you came early enough, you'll get one of the 20 seats that are reserved for the public and the press in the courtroom itself. If you're not, you have to go sit in overflow, which has comfier seats, but it's much more fun to be in the room where it's all going on. Well, I didn't realize how contested it was. I mean, so you got to queue up for basically four hours to get in. Well, that was for Caroline days. Caroline was the star witness. And so everyone knew she was going to be there and everyone who wanted to see it showed up really early. Today, well, we're recording this on Monday, October 16th, I'll say. Today, the prosecution pulled the fast one on everybody and started the testimony of Nishad Singh, another insider and FTX executive. No one seemed to know that this was going to happen today other than them. So there wasn't much of a line in the morning from what I heard. Now, tomorrow, I bet there will be because Nishad's testimony is definitely going to go into tomorrow. And if you want to hear it, you got to get there early. I'm worried, though, if Sam testifies, my goodness, I think I'll get there at 3 a.m., if not earlier. So what's the consensus amongst the press corps about whether he will testify or not? Well, we've all pretty much decided that he definitely did it, right? But my theory is the worse this trial is going for him, the higher the likelihood it is that he testifies, simply because testifying in your own defense is risky. But if the trial is going really poorly, it becomes less risky because you have less and less to lose. So I think he's got nothing to lose. And if he's got nothing to lose, testifying could only be a positive. That's my theory. And I did speak to a couple lawyers that I met up with in bars over the last two weeks. They have said the same thing. The less you have to lose, the higher chances they'll testify. So what do you think would happen if he did testify? I mean, what would that reveal? Oh, I don't know. I mean, he would, I guess, try to present his version of events. I don't really know what that version would be because the story that he was trying to tell in that month after it collapsed and before he was arrested is a very different one. Now that all the facts are out, he can't just ignore the facts that the government has presented or the allegations, rather. He has to right. say something about them. So I really don't know how he would spin this. His lawyers seem to be nearing an argument where all of these things were documented in the terms of service, and therefore it wasn't a secret and everything was above board. Hmm. I, I don't think that that's really a good argument to make, and I don't know how he's going to make that either. So Danny, uh, just talk about crypto in general. I mean, obviously, a lot of the mainstream press are saying that this is the trial of crypto, but uh, maybe we're saying it's, it's more specific than that. This is one bad actor. I mean, where do you stand in that kind of thinking? And how do you think this trial will affect the reputation of crypto going forward? Well, I think it's fair to say that this is a trial of crypto because Sam grew so powerful and had pushed to make himself into this spokesperson for all of crypto. And it turned out that he was a big fraud, allegedly, right? Uh, so it, it, it's really hard to recover from that in the public image. If the big successful company that was making these massive ads with Larry David for the Super Bowl and had a Miami Heat arena named after it and was testifying on Capitol Hill, if all that turns out to be the work of a fraud, it puts crypto back tremendously. 
because how do you recover from that? The people who believe in crypto will still believe in crypto, but the potential for the industry to grow is at the very least delayed severely. So I think it is fair to say this is the trial of crypto. It sounds like a lot of fun to be down there in the courthouse and uh, you know covering this momentous trial. I guess that's a bit different from our day jobs normally where we're covering uh, company news, which isn't maybe as exciting. Oh, this is the most fun. I sit in a courtroom all day. I mean, well, let me say, this is type two fun, but I find type two fun to be type one fun as well because I'm a weird guy. Type two fun is, of course, fun after the fact because it kind of sucks. And it does kind of suck to wake up at 5 a.m. in order to wait in line until 8 a.m., in order to wait in line until 9 a.m. without your phone, and then from 9 to 4 p.m. without your phone, sit on a hard wooden bench listening to lawyers argue. That doesn't sound fun, but let me tell you, it's so awesome. And I love it so much. And I love sitting there and writing in my hieroglyphic script uh, words no one else can read and just trying to figure out how to write an article in handwriting, rushing out the courtroom when big things happen, taking pictures, being in the press scrum. It's the most fun as a reporter that you could ever imagine. So I hope this trial goes on and on and on because the only limiting factor here is how long will my friends put up with me on the couch? So far, They've put up with me for two weeks. I think we can go for six. We'll have to find out. Yeah, that would test anyone's patience, I think. Uh, six weeks of you on the couch, Danny. We're here at the tavern. Don't know what its name is. Tavern on Reed. The Tavern on Reed. I am three Guinnesses deep. It is 6.47 p.m. on a Tuesday. And we've just wrapped up, I think, the halfway mark of the Sam Bankman Free Trial. I'm here with uh, Nick Day, our fearless leader in these efforts. Nick, give us a rundown. What's it been like in the courtroom? It's been pretty fascinating getting a sense of the different people who are watching the trial, as well as, of course, you know, everyone's reactions to what we're hearing from prosecutors and the defense attorneys in the courtroom. We have a number of people, reporters, yes, but also members of the general public, people who are in the crypto, obviously interested, we also have people who are here from an academic perspective who have no interest in crypto but are just curious about the case itself. You have people who are here just because they're somewhat you know, adjacent to crypto. It's been a fascinating insight into kind of the you know, little ecosystem that sprung up around a criminal court trial, one of the biggest in this industry. And Nick, tell us a little bit about how you're managing us, right? We have a team of five people here. You're undisputably in charge. Like, how do you call the shots? So we've been going off of what I think has so far been a pretty successful system of just having people rotate around what they're doing. So there's usually someone in the actual courtroom where the defendant Sam Bankman-Fried is, where the jury is. And usually that's been you, Danny. You've been there, I think, more than any of us have so far. And thank you for your service on that. That is a uh, long and thankless role. Most of the rest of us have been in what we call the overflow room. What we've been doing in the overflow room is as news comes out, you know, someone will write that down. One member of our team will have that on a piece of paper because we're obviously we're not allowed to bring phones or laptops or any kind of electronic device into the courtroom or into the overflow room. And they will literally run out and phone the information into one of our editors, either Nick Baker or Mark Hoxie, who has been uh, quarterback in this thing from a computer on the, uh, at their desks. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. I, I will say, Nick, thank you for your 
uh, thinking of my think as well. I, I just, I really enjoy going in the courtroom. Like, sitting in the uh, overflow room, it's nice primarily because you can lounge about, yawn, talk to your friends, uh, get up and pee if you need to. Uh, but being in the courtroom, you get to see the jury, you get to, t you get to look at the judge, his face, you get to see his exasperation at times, and really, his emotion is his emotions range from mild anger to total exasperation. Judge Kaplan does. Uh, it's a fully different experience, and I really enjoy that aspect of coming to trial. And I have to say, Nick, I don't want this trial to end. I, I really like it. Yeah, no, this is fun. This is a very different kind of reporting than what we usually do at CoinDesk. At CoinDesk, you know, a lot of everything that we do is based around being online, doing things online. The sport reporting role is totally different. We're not online. We literally have to turn in our computers and phones. We have to just take down notes on a piece of paper. I've had two pens run dry. I've run through three notebooks already. And we have to distill what's happening. You know, again, while we're in that room writing things down, we have to figure out what the news is and then run it out, call it in, get back inside. Uh, running through security again. It's definitely, it's fun. Yeah, and we also have to be on the lookout because there are so many reporters on this. Everyone's writing variations of the same story. So the question for us becomes, how do we write differently? And for me, I th one of those moments was today when we had this rather dry testimony from uh, an FBI guy talking about triangulating Sam Bankman-Fried's location based on cell phone records and his emails. And in one of the emails, uh, Sam's scheduler, Natalie Tian, writes that he'll be meeting with uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams at Australia Labaya. And I thought, well, I don't live in New York, but I read a lot of the news. And I thought, oh, I recognize that name. That's the name of Eric Adams' favorite restaurant that he only ever goes to. And, you know, little bits and bobs like that help us put together stories that no one else is getting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of our competitive advantages that, you know, we are covering this as kind of a, you know, the paper of record for crypto, but also there are all these little different stories and side stories that are coming out in trial that maybe they're not the most important to the question of did Sam Bankman Freed commit wire fraud and conspiracy to commit other forms of fraud, but they're interesting. There are all these little bits of color and detail that are presenting a fascinating look at the life of FTX and the role that Bank and Fleet played in it over the past several years. Yes, and looking forward from the time we're recording this, the, the prosecution will still be making this case by the time this recruitment comes out, but it will be nearing the end. We're in the home stretch for the prosecution, and one of the biggest questions remains whether Sam will take a stand. We'll get to that in later episodes of the show. But, uh, wait, do you have any more parting thoughts, friends? What I was saying before about how it is such a different experience, and one thing I wanted to pick up that you mentioned, the different experiences of being in the courtroom versus in the overflow room. I remember you and I were actually having a conversation last week about totally different reactions to something a witness said, where you were pointing out that the jury was, I think, really you know into what was being discussed. It was a completely different reaction to what those of us in the overflow room gathered, because we don't see the jury in there. And as far as we could tell, it was just a very boring back and forth on very technical and specific details. So, yeah, um, yeah I do think that is a fascinating kind of dichotomy that 
we're seeing from how we're reporting this. Absolutely. And uh, that's all for now. We'll be bringing you more little bits from our time at the courtroom in the days to come. All right, so we are live. It is the 18th of October, uh, around 1 p.m. We are standing outside the courthouse. We are, have moved into a new phase of the trial, the Snorefest. Nick, have you started sleeping? I have not today, but it's very close. You haven't? All right, really? Are you sure? I've been getting close to it, because but Because yesterday I sat right next to a heater, and I was definitely drifting to sleep. That's the secret. I did not sit next to the heater. Oh, yeah, the heater, that'll really knock you out. Today I'm in the courtroom my uh, back straight up against these wooden boards. And in front of me is a financial Santa Claus, a Notre Dame professor of accounting who took a very long, a very good look at FTX and Alameda's books, trying to understand where the money was flowing and if it was possible that Alameda could have borrowed all this money from FTX in a way that was allowable or explainable with anything other than customer funds. And Nick, did he come to a conclusion? Yeah, so this is Professor Peter Easton from the University of Notre Dame telling us that in his view, based on the bank statements and internal records from FTX's database, all the funds that Alameda used to buy things had to have come from FTX customer funds. Yes, so we looked at all these different spreadsheets trying to understand where money was flowing, from whom, all that good stuff. And he was saying, if you look at the real estate that Alameda purchased, the investments in companies, the donations to charities and to political causes, some, that money must have come from FTX customers. There was just no other source that could explain in a sizable way. And uh, Nick, what other conclusions are you drawing from today? Like what phase of the vibes have we moved into? It's definitely a lot more, uh, I don't want to say boring, but it's a lot less salacious than we've heard. You know, we no longer have the key insiders, the people who are at the heart of the company. Uh, and this is probably going to remain the case to the rest of the trial. The remaining witnesses are only really include one insider at this point who may not testify for a few more days yet. Yes, uh, and no one was dreading today more so than Eliora Katz, the first witness of the day. She, she uh, did not want to be oh there. Oh my goodness. Her body language when she walked into the courtroom, it expressed, I did not want to be there. And her words backed that up. She mumbled through her testimony. She was really only there to help the government present some exhibits of Sam testifying before Congress. But Eliora, who was basically head of uh, the government relations for FTX's U.S. wing, every time she spoke, she undercut her statements with, I wasn't here when this was made as if to just distance yourself from the misstatements that were being made. You can't really blame her, but it was not the narrative that the government, I bet, wanted her to present. Yeah, I mean, clearly the DOJ just wanted her to say, yes, this is Sam Bankman-Fried. Yes, he and FTX put out these statements about customer protections and their importance and the role that the federal government might play in regulating crypto and that all of this happened in public statements before Congress. And she technically did acknowledge those details, but as you mentioned, Every time she did, she opened her statement with, "Before this was before I got to FTX. And she began in April 2022. Some of these testimonies were 2021, early in 2022. Yes. So she only had maybe 30 minutes up there. We're getting financial Santa Claus probably all day, I would say. I'm excited to hear where it goes. Uh, that's all from me. Nick, any closing thoughts? No, I think, honestly, this stuff is genuinely fascinating, and we will see where this leads us, especially now that we move into the cross-examination of Professor Easton. But 
there's going to be no we tried bribing the Chinese government moments, uh, I would expect. One would hope, for Sam's sake. All right, so that was uh, the great Danny Nelson. He's reporting from the SBF trial, which is ongoing in Manhattan downtown. And thank you very much, Danny, for keeping us up to date. And we'll check in again with you soon. Uh, this is an ongoing trial. expected to go for six weeks, as Danny was saying. So plenty more to say there. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Carpe Consensus. That was Danny Nelson. I'm Ben Schiller. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas... Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.